Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EMU Market Talk podcast. Today we have a special edition looking at the potential for energy storage. So the renewables market has been developing at rapid pace over the past decade. In the Middle East and North Africa, over the past five years, we've seen a real growth in the clean energy market. We've also seen a number of world record tariffs set for solar energy in the Middle East. So it's been driving a lot of the global development. I'm Andrew Roscoe, Editor of Energy and Utilities. I'm Gareth Rapley, Group Director for Energy and Utilities. And today we're delighted to welcome Mohamed Atif, the Area Manager for the Middle East and Africa for the Energy and Renewables Advisory at DNVGL. Welcome, Mohamed. Thank you, Andrew. Gareth, it's uh, good to be here. Great to have you here in the studio, Mohamed. Uh, obviously, you've supported our events before. You've been a panellist for live discussions. Obviously, this has been a, an interesting year, but it's great to carry on the discussion online in a digital format. And hopefully next year, that can lead on to some more live events. So, to start, how important is energy storage if countries are to achieve net zero carbon targets and deliver on ambitious renewable energy programs? Two words, very important. We've done as DNVGL, we've done a lot of research. It's also a kind of a, a personal passion of mine to look at new technologies and how to bring on decarbonization in our systems and what have you. What we have seen is that energy storage is one of the linchpins that's going to make the difference between us having a chance of countries reaching their uh, NDCs, nationally determined commitments, and our Paris commitments. In terms of the technology itself, it has two enablers. One is the increased integration of, as you know, renewables on the network, the variable renewables, wind, offshore wind, solar in particular. And the other one is, and this is the big one, and we'll discuss it more as we go along, and this is the electrification of transport. So there's going to be a huge convergence between transport, the grid, and the energy system in general, and therefore energy storage and the technologies behind it, absolutely fundamental for us to uh, continue down the path of decarbonization, net zero, etc. It's sort of like the game changer, isn't it? We had renewable energy now, which in the past few years has actually become cheaper than conventional fossil fuel. Obviously, in most circumstances, it's still a peak power. So you have when the sun's out or when it's windy. So energy storage is seen as the game changer. That's when we could have 100% of energy coming from renewables. And it will also help with the move towards green transport as well. That's right. You know, we, we've had or we, we calculate the, the levelized cost of energy from uh, these renewable installations. There are also additional costs in the grid, which sometimes we don't measure completely when we look at the standalone generation technology. And there's also, as the percentage penetration of these renewables on the grid increases, there are more challenges in terms of stability, security, system operation, matching supply and demand. So at some point, the system costs, the grid costs start to increase. So I would say that Storage is definitely one of the technologies that we are leveraging to bring on increased penetration of renewables. But I think the grid and the investments required in the grid, the type of grid and the philosophy of the grid, a more active grid, a more bi-directional grid, is also increasingly important for the energy transition 
the investments we see and expect in the grid are quite phenomenal. For example, at the moment, globally, on sort of CapEx, OpEx in total, I think we estimate that there's around 400 billion US dollars being spent on the grid globally in total. By 2050, we expect that to be closer to a trillion. Wow. Now, sounds like a lot, and it is, but later in the discussion we'll find that obviously 2050, we're catering to a different system, different demand profile, more electrification of transport, and a population that, you know, is going to reach between 9.4 and 9.8 billion people. So it sounds a lot, but it it is needed and uh, very important. And there's lots of different forms of energy storage. You know, there's been more discussions again this year and even just this week. We're hearing about things like underground gas storage in with companies like Aramco in Saudi and I think projects being looked at in the UAE. But what do you see as the main forms of energy storage that are currently available to really allow for renewable energy to be stored and then dispatched later? Mm-hmm. Gareth, this is storage nexus, especially with respect to electricity, which traditionally you thought you couldn't store, you know, um, although the technology was there or you couldn't store economically. And there have always been storage technologies around. Batteries have been around a long time. Back in my day, we didn't even have rechargeable batteries. You know, we used to we used to have to rely on Duracell and Everetti. <laughs> Things have changed there. Pump storage, hydro reservoirs, they've been around a long time. That's a, a form of storage. There are flywheel technologies. You know, they've been around some time. Heat storage, that's been around for some time. Gravity, uh, you know, it not quite pump storage but similar process you know you push something up and when you need it to come down and it it it, 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 it turns a turbine but there are these niche storage technologies that are already there can be used in certain applications but right now globally as we're all aware batteries are taking the lead as the chosen technology let's say uh, relative to all the other formats that are out there With respect to the battery, the chemical components, the element components are different in each battery, but the main component, current industry choice, is lithium. So I would say at the moment, that is the main technology. We can talk further about the different developments that are happening. The technologies and the research that's going on is is, is quite exciting, even from a businessman's perspective you've got different combinations being tested. I mean, there's lithium, I've just mentioned, there's nickel, there's cobalt, there's manganese. Each of them have slightly different properties in terms of mass, recharge, discharge capabilities, cost, availability. Obviously, there's an ESG component. This ESG component is becoming increasingly important. But in general, as we said earlier on, taking it from the aim, the vision. The vision is a decarbonized power system, uh, if possible, a completely net zero power system for the future. This is what we're aiming for. To drive that, we need storage. A big component of the future demand, electrification and storage resource are going to be vehicles. And this is something that's not quite appreciated. Between now going from perhaps million electric vehicles, by 2050, I think we estimate maybe 1.3 billion electric vehicles on the road plus you've got the other areas they're the two wheelers the the three wheelers the the last mile 
transportation, these old but new electric modes of transport. So when you put all of that together, the industry has to make a choice in terms of what's economic, what should the supply chain be, how can we mass produce, like photovoltaics, you know, a monocrystalline choice was made, mass production, cost came down. Same thing with energy storage. We need it to be economic. We need it to be widely adopted, as modular as possible, ability to dispose of it in a safe way. Therefore, right now, battery storage, lithium-ion, both in the power system itself and in transportation, is the expected and forecast way forward in terms of critical mass. And the transport, the storage and transport, will or is expected to be a massive storage resource for the power systems of the future as well. It's just something I was hearing about the other day was electric vehicles. Are they being overlooked as part of this is also a storage mechanism. And this has been something that's been long discussed for a while is around how vehicles can be a storage mechanism. If you think we drive to an office, for instance, well, that vehicle is going to sit there for maybe nine, 10 hours. Yeah. You know, how does that maybe store and regenerate energy back into the grid? Are these more of the things that you're kind of saying or playing into that role about EVs and I guess transport in general, like say last mile, you know, we've been starting to move away from things like helicopters to drones to deliver yes. and courier. So I'm guessing there's going to be more of that change as we move ahead. Absolutely. I think there are a few things we're involved in. We're involved in futuristic cities. I guess the most hyped city perhaps is Neon. Mm. We're involved in some aspects of that, but we also have in Egypt, a very famous city, you'll recognize it, the uh, Alamein city, historically a very, very important uh, city. But that's kind of, let's say, one of Egypt's neons or one of or its Red Sea type of futuristic city. And it's those cities where we're going to see the application of these future technologies and what have you. In terms of how we're going to see the future as well, I think it, for me, it's getting more and more crystal clear. Not every year, every month. And even today, please double check me on this, but I think we've got the EU Climate Summit. They have a, a standard EU climate summit meeting. And I'm expecting there you will see further solid statements being made by the European Union on how they foresee the development of their transportation. They may even indicate certain laws and regulations they're bringing. And they're being quite bold. They're giving dates. By 2030, some countries, and maybe at EU level, let's see, by 2030, we expect this. In our supply chain, we want net zero for transport by this date. We we're banning the combustion engine by this date. So when you start to see uh, initiatives like that, it gives you direction. Also, the European Union, they've set up a committee for rare earth elements, which means that they're taking the supply of these minerals and elements that are needed for decarbonization. That's another story. There's a huge story behind this and there's a huge risk as well behind this in terms of the raw materials. Mm. You know, we, we are going from one raw material, switching from a, you know, a petroleum raw material to mined raw material. So there are issues there. So the EU has set up initiatives there. You'll also see uh, initiatives on blockchain. You know, this leads into the sort of whole digitalization and AI kind of uh, nexus. But so I foresee that these are all facilitators. Again, we want to decarbonize our systems. We are engaging renewable energy to do that. That relies on certain technologies, which includes 
these rare earth elements, as I mentioned, it includes strengthening and more advanced grid. That's where we're going to be bringing in more of these digital technologies to manage the grid better, more forecasting, more AI, more extensive balancing. And in addition to that, we've got to keep our eye on the ESG component of this change and you know, make sure we're not creating negative externalities. ESG, that's what we're hearing more about. That refers to during the sort of development production phase, isn't it? That's what I'm referring to, yes. Environment, social governance, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that we're all seeing in all of our organizations to be aware of it. So for example, lithium ion, there are various ways to extract it. First of all, the energy. What type of energy are we using to extract the lithium ion itself? Secondly, when you're mining, you're digging, you're drilling, there's an environmental factor there. With lithium ion, depending on the extraction technology, you're in general sucking out brine from a reservoir and then taking the lithium ion. Are you disposing of it or are you filtering it and putting it back in? And any of the heat that's coming off that, is that being flared or is it being used? So that environmental component is very important. Social, yeah, you know, are there people living by? Are you displacing and all of that? That's common to all. Yeah, that's what I mean by ESG, especially with respect to the rare earth elements. We're seeing that in Europe, aren't we? We're seeing net zero targets, renewable targets, and also there's deadlines now for petrol vehicles, getting them off the road in, in countries like the UK. So with the convergence of the storage possibilities from both, it's going to be a big market going forward. And I guess battery storage is sort of leading the way at the moment, or that there's the most potential. The question we often hear asked, when will it be cost efficient to be rolled out on a large scale? Over the last couple of years, we saw, I think in Australia, there was a 100 megawatt project, mm. I think it was Tesla batteries. Mm. However, in the Middle East, for example, there was supposed to be a scheme in Jordan for utility scale batteries that, that didn't actually happen in the end. I mean, when do you think it'll be cost efficient to be rolled out battery storage on a, on a large scale across the region. Just connecting to Jordan, there's an interesting initiative ongoing at the moment. It's called the Risk Mitigation Procurement Round. That's in South Africa. They put a tender out in the market and challenged suppliers. say, look, we want a clean, secure source of power. So you've got many companies now trying to put a hybrid solution together. So we should see, at least from, from the market, up-to-date cost estimates of how they're going to do that with storage and, and other technologies. But my current view is this. In the past, I think pretty much every organization that's made a forecast has been wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was my professors a long time ago. The only thing, or was it my first boss? The only thing you know for sure about your forecast is that it's going to be wrong. <laughs> I was always, what? <laughs> okay. But I think there's an expectation that 2030 is kind of the date. I think DMUGL has done modeling on this, uh, BNEF has done it, NREL has done it, Guidehouse has done it. Many companies have projections and that generally they're based on um, learning curve rates. So the rule that when you double capacity, then the cost will fall by X percent. Mm. So at the moment, I think for batteries, we have estimated that to be 19%. Solar obviously is much higher, I think it's closer to 30, 29, 30. 
So that is what is driving it. And then if you if you kind of look at the penetration rates expected, 20, 30 is a day. However, I think that the uh, per megawatt hour cost of sales, even the LCOE, between last year and this year, probably dropped by about more than 20%, for example. So my view is that I think, like with all other technologies, could be as early as 2025. Right, sure. Uh, uh, and now, why do I say that? Based on experience of being wrong, mm. so, yeah. <laughs> uh, previously. <laughs> and also, if you look at the stats that, for example, lithium-ion production is expected to increase 25-fold between now and 2050. Just 25-fold. Mm millions and millions of, uh, of uh, tons. And if you look at the investments that are being made in the mines around the world at the moment, and when that supply is due to come on stream, plus you look at the commitment to demand, if you look at the number of battery factories mm. just around Europe, either planned, completed, or under construction, dots the map. I mean, there's a significant number of gigawatts coming. So I'll put my cards on the table and say, I think by 2025, we're going to start seeing some very interesting costs and prices. I guess with PV solar, we've seen the, the falling costs. I mean, covering this market, remember in 2015 for Dubai's first large scale project, it was 5.85 cents a kilowatt hour tariff. Yeah. I remember I was at a conference back in the day when there was conferences and there were sort of arguments on stage by some prominent players in the in the energy market developers saying that's not sustainable, mm -hmm. you know, it's losing the market forever. Look where we are now, the prices just dropped below two cents in, yes. in five years. So I mean you're right, we can make predictions, but yeah, the cost can drop yeah. Yeah. drop suddenly. So that's an interesting market to follow. And you mentioned thermal solar there. It's another interesting topic. It's frequently brought up when I've attended conferences or this year on webinars, is the role of CSP, so that's concentrated mm. solar power. We have in the, I say the MENA, so Middle East and North Africa, Morocco's had some CSP solar. Abu Dhabi has one project, and Dubai is pushing ahead with one. A big question is, with batteries coming on in the next few years, what's the future for Thermal solar, how do you see that playing out? Do you think that will play a major role or do you think it's it's just sort of until batteries are cost efficient, stop that? I think they definitely have a role to play. To the countries you mentioned, they, I'll add Morocco as well. If you mentioned that and, and, and there's South Africa as well, they, they've, they've got them up and running. CSP is very interesting because at the moment in a power system, the batteries that we currently have, they're limited to this four hours discharge. The services they provide, it's not a one-to-one -one kind of replacement. It's not base loading right. at the moment. You know, it's 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 backup. It's 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 frequency support. Mm. It's brownouts and and yeah, when there's fluctuations in in uh, renewables, they're there. Whereas CSP and technologies like that, they can provide you with solar power, clean power overnight. Right? Mm. So the technology works. The resource is abundant. The cost is slightly higher. I think the latest cost estimates I saw were around eight uh, cents a kilo, US cents a kilowatt hour, which is, in my view, pretty good. What I have been impressed by is 
some of the adaptations to the traditional utility scale CSP that we see. I've seen a new technology in the marketplace which, for example, uses kind of CSP technology to gather heat from the sun through these mirrors and then stores this heat in chambers. And when needed, the heat is then allowed to modify its sterling engines. Completely clean, but depending on the capacity, you're technically able to store eight, nine, ten hours, maybe more of potential energy that can feed your system in the evening. Once again, there's a cost associated with that and it's relatively high, but where can it be used? There are still isolated networks where CSP type technology can provide that around the clock energy and security. There are mines, there are industrial sites, which when you talk about hybrid are still using diesel as the backup fuel or gas as the backup fuel. So initially those higher cost areas for this more distributed CSP type technology, I think is a, is a, is a huge opportunity to help decarbonize some of these more uh, isolated industries and communities that I mentioned. CSP in general, I think when you look at a power system on the whole, you have various measures as well from a high level planning perspective. You know, you have security of supply indices, you have diversity of supply security type indices. As part of a diversified supply mix, definitely it has a role in my view, especially where you've got the abundant resource. But I don't think you can compare one for one solar batteries right now with, with CSP because at the moment the solar and battery solution doesn't provide that overnight solution that CSP can. One of the areas that seems to be cropping up more and more in discussions over recent months is obviously we've got a lot of like smart metering going on, you know, trying to be energy efficient, but you've then got the behind the meter energy storage system and be interesting to hear from you, Mohammed. What do you see as the opportunities with behind the meter storage for helping to meet those net zero targets? Will that play a pivotal role or will this be a supporting mechanism? It's definitely part and parcel of the solution. I think for, let's say, interconnected communities and city networks, but also isolated regions. I mean, it, uh, the more isolated networks. Two ways, and even more so. One is, obviously, you have your traditional system, you know, your solar panels and your storage and your net metering facilities. But I think the big kind of switch or game changer is, as I mentioned earlier on, the electric vehicle. As soon as these start to be adopted en masse, then that behind the meter interaction becomes extremely important. And this is where sort of the digitalization and blockchain comes in to enable the tracking and tracing of those flows and that intertrade between individuals and distribution networks to take place. You've touched on digitalization a few times, it's obviously central to development of renewables and large scale and energy storage. You've also mentioned blockchain a couple of times. Yeah. It'd be interesting to to get your view on the on the role blockchain can play sure. in energy storage. So I mean, there is various ways of using blockchain, isn't there? I mean, yes. I remember at a conference a few years ago now, they were discussing, um, instead of Bitcoin, there was solar coin and there's some other methods. But it's not just referring to digital currencies, is it? It's referring to the, the system of payment system. Exactly, exactly. 
Blockchain is, for me, a very interesting technology. And it's one of those technologies that, almost like solar storage, it's probably going to be around for a few decades before we, we, we really find its, its, its niche. From a planning perspective, blockchain technology is, is seen by some as something called the general purpose technology. So it has the ability to replace, in general, certain elements of an entire economic system. Where blockchain technology is crucial is the settlement and payments, as we've said, and exchange of, uh, in this case, it would be energy and currency or whatever that may be, whether it's Bitcoin or solar coin. Right now, transaction costs, for any type of transaction, digital transaction we do, there's always some kind of intermediary. And these transactions are monitored uh, like a central settlement operator or a central bank or whatever you want to call it. And on a global scale, those transaction costs for any transaction we do can amount to, even like your credit card, can amount to sort of 2 or 3%. So if you're talking about a, a couple of trillion dollar economy or many trillion dollar economy globally, if you can save 1% to 2% by adopting a new technology for the way you manage your transactions on a global scale or even a country level, it's huge. So from a visionary perspective, that's the role blockchain can play. It literally is replacing the cost of that intermediary because it's that intermediary that generates two sides of the transaction are trustworthy. So once you don't necessarily need that intermediary because you have this blockchain ledger, which is public or limited public, where it's self-monitored as it were, that can provide an extra few percent of savings. Is it just the financial transaction though with blockchain? Because there's been lots of discussions, you know, I'm thinking back again over a number of years now, they've been talking in, you know, the fossil fuel side of the energy sector about, you know, having blockchain around the data, you know, who should own that data and should that be there? And and that becomes a blockchain ecosystem. You know, could that also then come into blockchain of energy consumption? So if you've got all this energy stored, that's available, we don't necessarily have to purchase that from, let's say, here at Dewa or, you know, European models where there's, you know, a greater selection of energy providers. You actually just go into the blockchain system and say, I need X amount of energy. Is that one of the ways that could work or is that it's more on the transaction level? At the moment, what we've been looking at is more on the transaction level. As a general purpose technology, the main thing blockchain facilitates is trust. It's trust in the transaction. So... It's trust in the energy you're buying. Was it generated from solar energy or, or not? The lithium in your battery, is it from a mine using child labor or not? The wine you're drinking, are the grapes from Australia or are the grapes from France or South Africa? Your PhD, your degree certificate, is that real or not? You know? Now, can that be verified? without having to go through a more centralized system which holds and monitors, is there a publicly available ledger which backs trust in that item? From the use cases that I've currently seen, that's how I've seen blockchain either trying to be applied, piloted, or being applied. Interesting. Another development we'll we'll all be watching closely. Discussed various methods of of energy storage, 
And again, this is bringing together some of the points you've made already. What do you think is the key challenges to battery storage, if that's sort of primary hope at the moment, being developed? You've touched on grid investment, digitization, and things. What would you say if you had to name sort of the top top two or three challenges to an energy storage market? I think it's array of services that it can fulfill. Because when we talk about storage, we're not really buying storage. It's kind of the services around it. And so we want to decarbonize energy system that provides us with a safe, secure, dependable supply of energy at an affordable cost. That's actually what we're looking for. So we can light our Christmas trees in the evening. We can eventually go out to the pubs and, and enjoy ourselves and watch movies and all that kind of thing drive our cars and, and, and have a transport, communication. We're actually not buying the storage. We're not even really buying the energy for itself. It's for what it enables. So the biggest challenge for energy storage integrating into the system is can it provide us at a general purpose level with all of those services in a dependable and cost-effective way? At the moment, if you say, hey, I can give you energy, energy storage and this battery, and, but it's only going to work for four hours. That's saying, okay, well, it can deal with some of the issues I have. Or you can drive this car and you can drive to Abu Dhabi, but on the way back, you'll need to stop. Okay, well, it gets me there and it nearly gets me back. We don't want a trade-off there. Again, we're not buying the battery we're buying the service that it enables. And we want to be able to drive to Abu Dhabi and back with an air conditioning system that works great, a nice sound system, smooth car, safe, without the inconvenience of running out of energy, running out of road and, and or not being able to charge. So there's another clue for you. It's, it's also the challenges, as we said earlier on. I know we talked about grid, but obviously, if we're talking about electrification of transport, then it's, it's also the uh, charging infrastructure around that. I think it's lots of parts that it feels like at the moment storage is centering around reliability, grids, you know, that infrastructure kind of piece. And I guess some countries are further along in that than others. And I think one of the other areas you've talked, you know, a few times is that digitalization into grids. What are some of the, you know, key opportunities or challenge that the role of digitalization will play in facilitating energy storage into the grid. How does that ecosystem really work? How do we make energy storage there into the grid using digitalization? I think it rests on the quality of the algorithms. When we talk about digitalization, again, there's, a, there's an array, depending who you speak to. <laughs> Everything from collecting data, electronic transactions, having a, a smart meter readout so you can read two-way communications, interoperability of your systems between the utility and yourself, you're going higher, big transfers of real-time mobility data, consumption data for a system to analyze trends and start to make decisions, monitoring and implementation of an increasing number of sensors weather sensors, temperature sensors, uh, traffic sensors, all these kinds of things. And then eventually into systems which start to make decisions or let's say 
take actions based on uh, on algorithms which allow them to effectively decide on where to produce, when to produce, where to match, what pricing, all the way to then how things are delivered and maintained through through more and more robotics and drones and everything else. So, you know, you've got digitization, which is trying to get everything into digital form. Then you've got digitalization that's applying all the algorithms. And then maybe uh, what I'm talking about is taking it all the way to sort of the advanced AI and analytics and, and how things may work in the future. So in short, the challenge around it, I think, is quality of the algorithms yeah. and the computing power and ability to manage all the data. That's it. Digitization topic is something that the last decades become really spoken about in the region utility sector. Started off talking about hardware, digital hardware, and now it's all about software, isn't it? And the, and the data. Yeah. Data is the new oil. That's what they're saying on the new gold. Uh, it's, 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 it's the latest catchphrase. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's it. And to finish, Mohammed, great insight today on some of the developments in energy storage. Another topic that's becoming increasingly uh, prominent, again, it's in the, for in the future, is green hydrogen. And that offers potential, I guess, where there is limits to what batteries can do. This green hydrogen can offer another opportunity to assist with decarbonisation. Mm. What do you think about the prospects for green hydrogen? This is a really interesting one. It's, it's kind of one of those things that it is the talk of the town, as I say it at the moment. As Dean Mugella, I think we have probably underpredicted it now, actually, but we expected hydrogen to take off more and more in the energy systems from around 2030 onwards and not play by 2050, I think, not play more than a 5% kind of role. However, what we do see, the role of a use case, for example, and the role of hydrogen, and this could be a real game changer potentially, is want to decarbonize our systems. Now, in doing that, we're highly dependent on solar and wind. These are intermittent resources. Not only are they an intermittency, what, does, what happens? Some people think intermittency means a lot of the time you don't have enough. Actually, a lot of the time you have too much. Too much sun, too much wind, demand drops off, you've got a problem. Your system stability, your, your inverters, your safety, your transform, everything is it's, it's kind of at risk. Where hydrogen can play a role is at the times in your market where you have excess wind and excess solar. You can use that to drive the electrolysis process. The end result of that is the green hydrogen and then pump that hydrogen into storage and release it when you've got a reverse situation. In a power system, that is a very, very interesting use case. Obviously, it depends on CapEx, OpEx, all, all, of, all, all of that, but it's a very real use case. When you have got too much renewable energy on the system, ideally, you, you don't want to curtail. There's a resource there and you're not using it. So what can you do? By way of electrolysis, produce hydrogen. It'll be fascinating to see how the NEON project goes. Obviously, one of the the major investments this year was the project with Aquapower mm. um, and I think Ella Keed for something like 5 billion to develop green hydrogen as part of NEOM. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot are kind of looking upon that. Well, what opportunities does that offer then as well with our export? Yes. Okay, there's a use case. How do we develop that on? How do we then take that into other areas? And I think coming back to your points there, obviously here in the Middle East, you know, I think Saudi probably more abundant with that. 
of not just solar, but also having wind capabilities as well. So how does that green hydrogen then flow into that mix? I think there's definitely a role for it to be a part of the mix. It's always good not to forget this. In general, ever since economic statistics have been recorded, in general, the world has, regardless of world wars or whatever, the world has grown at about 2% a year, something like that, GDP consistently. Population's growing. Yes, there is a decoupling. We do see a decoupling of energy and population, and we do see energy intensity also reducing. But in general, demand is growing. We do need different sources of energy. And hydrogen technically has been shown to have a role. You've got already tests at the moment being undertaken in the United Kingdom to see how hydrogen can be mixed into natural gas networks in a a, a safe way, for example. That's a use case. We, We know about the hydrogen vehicles, hydrogen trucks, hydrogen in maritime potentially. I mean, even was it Boeing or Airbus? One of them even announced that they still have this concept hydrogen aeroplane. So so I think based on what we see and hear and the analysis we've done, at least for the power systems and transportation, hydrogen is a known source and tests are already underway to see what role it can play in decarbonization. And I think finally, you know, if, if we do start to, if our governments start to price pollution in a, a higher and there are, you know, there are carbon taxes adopted and other limits and things, then naturally these other technologies are even more appealing. In order to meet your commitments, you might not be able to meet it one mode of fuel or transport. You may need access to others. So hydrogens, especially for the, um, the oil and gas majors, they also are have increasing ESG commitment, and hydrogen is one way for them to uh, move towards it. That's a great note to finish on. Often these industry conferences and webinars, there's sometimes a tendency to try and compete different technologies against each other, CSP or PV, talk about green hydrogen. It's not about you know this technology or this one, it's about how can they all be used, and there's a role for, for all of yeah. them to play. Absolutely, yeah. Which I think you've highlighted. You know, we've covered a lot of ground today um, about the different technologies, different battery storage, available thermal, solar, and also the key game changer will be when electric vehicles are integrated into to systems and, and daily life as well. The opportunities that will offer for energy storage, look to digitalization, blockchain, and also the prospects for green hydrogen as sort of the missing piece in the decarbonisation puzzle. So like to thank Mohamed Atif, the Area Manager for DNVGL for Energy and Renewables. Thank you for joining us today. Some of the themes we've discussed today, next year, Energy Utilities will be running a, a series of one-day conferences online at the start of the year. January, we have a solar one-day event. February is electrification of transport. So we'll, we'll get you involved for that, Mohamed, again. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in 2021. Thank you very much and uh, I wish you all safety, peace and for those of you who celebrate Christmas, New Year's and all the other things that are coming, have a great one. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining this year and uh, we look forward to a more prosperous 2021.